We'll open your Bibles to Colossians chapter 3 this morning. Colossians chapter 3. We looked in detail at Romans 6, verses 1 through 14. And we've now turned to a parallel passage in Paul's letter to the Colossians to actually help us apply it. Go, go one, one level below the, the surface. In Romans 6, verses 1 through 10, Paul explained the great truth about our union as a believer with, with Jesus Christ and the glorious changes that that, that brings. He, he said there's a change in how we relate to sin, there's a change in how we relate to God, and all of that is because of, of our union or that we're in union with, with Jesus Christ, with His death, His burial, and His resurrection. But, but then immediately... After stating the facts about this theological union, Paul exhorts us in this truth with four combat-ready verses. That was in verses 11 through 14 of, of, of Romans 6. They call us to action. We said they call us to war, in, in fact. He gave four imperative commands that we, that we looked at, commands to walk in this new reality, we're to reckon or to apprehend this truth about this union so we can act on it. And then we're not to obey sin's influence, we're not to offer ourselves to sin as instruments, but, but instead we're to yield ourselves to God and our members as, as tools to Him for, for righteousness. And, and now that we've gotten our theology for moment six and our marching orders, we want to add some detail to, to that about, about what that looks like in, in daily life. And we're, we're doing that by looking at this parallel passage in the book of Colossians, which gives us details in this area of biblical replacement, also called putting off and, and putting on. This, this practice of replacing our, our former ways with our new ways in Christ is, is one of the ways that God is designed to tangibly obey the commands in Romans 6. I mean, we hear the command to, to, to calculate, we hear the command to not yield to sin and to yield ourselves to God, but, but how do we do that? What, is that? what does that look like day after day, choice by, by choice? I mean, as a Christian, you probably know you're to fight the flesh, and that's, that's in your face every morning whenever you, you, you wake up, probably this morning whenever you, you looked in the mirror. Well, Paul says the bullets and the bandages of the battle are, are actually found right here in Colossians 3, verses 5-14. It's, it's found in the putting off of the, the deeds and the desires of the old man and putting on the attitudes and the actions of the new man, which is the person that, that we are now in, in Christ Jesus. And the, it's the process this passage describes in, in detail. And Colossians 3 gives several examples of vices that we're to remove and, and then a contrasting list of virtues that, that we're to add in their place. It's not just stopping one thing, but it's actually adding something positive that, that was impossible for you to do before that you, you came to Christ. But now that you have come to Him, these deeds are, are, are no longer fitting for a Christian, and these are the... The, the virtues that we're, to, that we're to pursue. We're to set our minds on the things which are above and not on the things of the, of the earth. And then in verse 5 of Colossians 3, it begins our application to show us how. Look, look if you would, at Colossians 3, verse, verse 5. Here is the, 
the point of application, if you will. And you can tell that by the, even the first word. Therefore. Therefore. Because of what he just got done saying in verses 1 through 4. You've been raised up with Christ. Therefore, consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to, to idolatry. Literally, put the members of your body to death, which is the command, and then Paul gives the list of, of the sins that we're, we're to put off. All because we have the power of heaven in us, now that we're believers, the Spirit of God reigns in us, we have the promise of heaven before us, there's the resurrection that's coming. That's where we're to set our minds as we're doing this battle on the, on the earth. And the last time we looked at this first part of these vices that we're, we're to put off that I just read, and today we're going to look at the second part in verses 8 through, through 11. And even as you read these two lists or heard them, you, you might say, well, well, I don't find myself in the first list. I, I don't consider myself an immoral person. That, that's not a sin that I, I struggle with. But you'll hear today things like anger, wrath, um, prejudices that you ha might have in your heart towards someone who's not like you. These are, are things that that surface on a, on a regular basis because of our hearts and the world that we live in. Paul instructs with three commands here in total. Verse 5, consider the members dead. Consider our members dead. Verse 8, but now you also put them all aside. That's the second command. Put them all aside. And he gives a second list. And then he gives a, a third command in verse 9 to set apart this the sin of lying. Do not lie to one another. That's a command. Since you have laid aside. It begins then to describe why we are to obey these commands. Since you've laid aside the old self with its evil practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. This is all union with Christ. He brings us back to the theology. A renewal in which there is no distinction between Greek and Jew. Circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, and free man. But Christ is all and in, in, in all. We said he gives a death sentence to the things that flow from our remaining earthly natures. When you come to Christ, you're not glorified yet. You're no longer a slave to sin. You now have been given the power and the ability to say no to sin, but sin is still around us. Sin still influences us from within, and, and that won't be, won't be done away with until heaven. So until heaven, you, you are the, the executioner, Paul says. We're calling it three articles to the death sentence of our, our earthly nature. We're to put off sins of desire, which is what we looked at last time. Today, we're to put off sins of disunity, and then we'll also see today the decisive reason that you must, you must do this. The list we looked at on Mother's Day are sins that affect your devotion to God. You're, you're not to be an idolater. These are, these are sins uh, that, that have a worship problem. When, when you lust after other things rather than set your affections on God. This, this second list are, are sins that, that affect our relationships with others. So sins of the body and the mind and now sins of the tongue. Sins of, of, of interpersonal conflict. And they're no two harder to, to over, overcome. Last time, just a brief reminder, we're, 
we were told to, to, to put off the sins of desire. Verse 5, Therefore consider the members of your earthly body dead, immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, greed, which amounts to idolatry. There's the devotion issue. We're to put to death the parts of our mortal bodies that give sin a place to light. We're not to kill our body literally or hack off a part of our body, but, but the bodily expressions of sin, the way sin comes out in, in us, is it's through the, these portals, our eyes, our hands, our tongues. And then he gives the list, immorality, impurity, inordinate affection, or passion, inordinate desire, and finally, covetousness or greed. Paul says, kill those things at the root because they attract God's wrath in verse 6. And they're the things that you used to do before you came to Christ. Now that you've come to Christ, you live differently, in particular in these areas. But then he gives a second major battlefront that, that we are to, to confront. The second article to the death sentence is you're commanded to put the sins of disunity to death. These are sins from a divisive heart, anger, wrath, and malice. And they're sins that end up on a disparaging tongue, like slander, abusive speech from your mouth, and, and lying. And then there are also sins that disrupt the body of Christ or dislocate the focus in the body of Christ, which will... We'll see in, 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 in verse 11. Look, look if you would, at, at verse 8. He says, but now also, just the first list, but now you also, put them all aside, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and abusive speech from your mouth, do not lie to one another. So Paul gives us another list, and then he also provides a second imperative, which causes us to wonder why a new command. I mean, Paul could have just continued with his list, but he but he gives a second command that's, that's a little different. This one's not an executioner. This is, a, this is a wardrobe attendant. And he does this because a believer has to fight on two fronts. They're, they're very different theaters of the same war. You might think of these two lists like the, the European and the Pacific theater of World War II. They're, these are very different kinds of sins. It's different as German and Japanese, but, but both of them must be engaged. Both battlefronts must be engaged in the, in the Christian life. And this second list can, can be bunched together in, in three categories. Anger, wrath, and, and malice are, are all sins which primarily reside within the heart. And then there's slander, abusive speech, and, and, and lying which are the, the volcanoes opening where the, where the lava from the anger, wrath, and malice spews out. They're the blowholes of the, the crashing waves of anger and bitterness that, that smashes against our, our insides and then, and then finds an expression with this evil muscle that's trapped between our teeth that comes out flopping around sometimes. And then the last one, the last sin is racial and social prejudices, which is covered in, in verse 8. In, in Christ, there's neither Greek nor Jew, circumcised nor uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, or free. But, but Christ is all and, and in all. So a new command Paul gives here 
And we're to put them all aside. And, and this word is used for the changing of clothes. It's, a, it's to, the idea of removing a cloak from, from yourself. And the way that Paul uses it, you're, you're to take off these, these sins, that uh, take off what's in this list like, like a dirty garment. Paul is saying take off the things in the list, laying it aside like a, like a, a shabby coat or a filthy shirt. You're, you're not to be wearing these things around in your Christian life. I mean, think of the imagery here. You are a new creation in Christ Jesus. And so you're changed, you're transformed. But, and, and so these sins, like a, like a garment on the outside of you, are, it's not something that, that's fitting for a Christian to, to wear. You're not only the executioner of, of immoral deeds, but you're responsible to dress in a Christ-like wardrobe. And he's not talking about short skirts here. He's talking about things that come up in your heart and then, and then out of your mouth. Paul says the flesh is a horrible fashion designer. And you need to go through your closet and get rid of some styles that are now out of date because you're a believer. And this list is what he wants you to send to the devil's goodwill shop. And you don't need a tax write-off for it. You just leave it in the burn pile. It's bad news for believers. Let the unbelievers wear these things. But, but not the Christian, Paul says. And every time I read this passage, I, I have this vivid image of, of my, my childhood. Um, Tracy's father was a, was a diesel mechanic in the, in the coal mines there driving back from West Virginia the, this morning, being a family graduation that was there on, on Friday night. We met when we were 16. We celebrate 30 years of marriage this year. At 16 years old, I can remember seeing her father, who's about 6'3 and over 250, and um, smelling of oil and grease. He was a diesel mechanic in the coal mines, and when he would come home from his job, he was filthy dirty. He'd often be black from head to toe, with ground in grease all over his denim shirt and his jeans, working on the big trucks. And when he'd get home, he would take off those clothes, and he'd lay them aside for Tracy's mother to, to wash. I mean, he'd never think about coming home and just walking in from work and sitting down on the couch all evening or taking the family out to dinner in, in, in his work clothes. He certainly wouldn't wear them to a wedding or, or to church. I mean, how unfitting would that be? But, Paul says it's just like these deeds of our unsaved life, these ground-in interpersonal sins that, that, that are the kind that no human effort or moral soap can clean. So you have to lay them aside. And the first area he tells us to, to identify and, and take off are sins of a divisive heart, anger, wrath, and, and malice. It's interesting when you look at these two lists, uh, Paul details actions first in the first list. Immorality, uncleanness, pornea. And then he moves to the attitudes like passion, evil desire, and covetousness. In this list, he puts the heart issues up front. And then moves to the sinful actions. Anger, wrath, and, and malice. And then moves to the, to the slander, abusive speech, and, and lying. He just flips the process. And, and all of these sins are primarily committed against other people. He says, lay aside anger, wrath, and malice, which all naturally go together. But what's the difference? Why does he use three different words if they all go together? Well, well anger is, is this internal resentment. 
Wrath is the external rage, and then malice is when both of those soak down into your bones like, like an ill-flavored oil. The word for anger is, is orge. It, it means an underlying hostility, a seething animosity. And it's primarily resident inside of you. It's a sin of sentiment. It's the internal workings of the heart that, that puts heat under the kettle, which then boils over in wrath. And most people, when they think of anger, and somebody who getting, somebody gets angry, they confuse it with the second word, which is wrath. They, they think anger is the outburst. But, but this word is actually the underlying animosity that cooks it, which is then released in this, these next two sins. I mean, anger is like a, a smoldering coal left under the leaves after a poorly uh, extinguished forest fire or campfire. It's resentful bitterness, which is settled in a person's heart. It's, it's, it's in there, under other things. In Ephesians, it's actually replaced with the word bitterness, which is, a, which is an expression of anger. Bitterness is, is what happens whenever anger, this seething, stays in there too long, when it's not expressed and extinguished. It's a good synonym for the term. Joel James said, bitterness is living with a bad taste in your mouth for, for someone. When you think of this person, a bad wind blows in your heart, a bad taste comes in the back of your, your throat, and the thoughts come to your mind, bad thoughts, a grimace may come across your face. And he pointed out that the, the word for bitterness actually comes from the Greek word meaning stomach bile, which is kind of nasty. Bitterness is nasty. It's the bad taste for someone who's wronged you or, or you perceive that they had. And he said an angry and bitter person is like an old miser. Except they don't count money, they count offenses. An angry or bitter person is like someone who sits in the dark corner of their, of their bedrooms and, and they count the old hurts. They, they go over them and over them and over them in their minds, stacking up the insults and the offenses of, of others like coins. And then storing up the thoughts of, of what they would do to that person for every wrong that they had done, that they've, they've gone over and over. And it's like treasure. They're like an anger miser, he said. They carry that around inside until a circumstance or situation provokes them, and they, they let it out. And Paul says that is something that you have to put off as a Christian. It's not an outfit that's befitting a believer to, to wear on their heart. And beyond that, people that are, that are given to this internal anger and bitterness are, are miserable themselves, and they're miserable to be around. You can see that even with that word of, for stomach bile. It's just a bitter taste. You see that on their face and their countenance. And they're typically self-centered people, which is really the root of the, the sin of anger. It's all about self. They can't get over the anger because someone did something to them. I mean, can you believe that? Somebody did something to, to me. And for whatever reason, their, their, their lives are, are about, about them, their rights, and everything and everyone else owes them a fair shake. And when they have a perceived injustice done to them, they react toward the offender, and their reaction is anger. And if it stays there long enough, it turns to bitterness. Angry and bitter people feel as though something or someone has violated them, 
Therefore, that person, whoever is the violator, deserves whatever response I give to them. You get what you deserve, kind of thing. You made your bed, now you're going to lie in it. They feel some perceived right was violated, and now others are going to pay. I mean, think about the last time you were angry. Maybe when someone disturbed your peace or got in your way when you were driving down the road. You could probably think of a number of, of expressions. You came home tired. You were looking forward to an evening of rest. You got up from a hard day the, the day before. The kids started to disturbing that rest, that desire by, by being loud or, or fighting. And you might not go off all at once. You might stuff it for, for a while, but then your thoughts begin to churn about how aggravating it is. And, and then the pressure cooks. That feeling you have at that moment is this word, cooking that's in there. Feeling in that moment. Or maybe a driving illustration helps. On a normal day, you'd just be driving along. I got behind some guy this morning. He's just driving along. I don't know that he was going to church or anywhere else. It's Sunday. And I just have not going to work, just driving along. Well, I had somewhere to go this morning. So today is totally different for me, right? And in those days, everybody just needs to go back to driving school. I mean, what's wrong with you? Get out of my way as you push them down the road. See the self-centeredness in both of those? Everyone is in your way. The kids are disturbing your peace. They violated your authority. And anger and bitterness is an expression of that self-orientation. And they're both very dangerous sins. Bitterness is compared in the Bible to a prison, a chain. Something that ties you down. I'm sure you've heard this before, but one commentator said, bitterness is like drinking poison, hoping the other person dies. And Hebrew says, uh, an internally angry or bitter person falls short of the grace of God. Look at what Hebrews 12.15 says. See to it that no one, that's none of you, comes short of the grace of God. What does that mean? Well, he explains it. That no root of bitterness springing up causes trouble, and by it many be defiled. To fall short of the grace of God means that, that, that you're no longer willing to, to extend grace, which is what a bitter person is. That no root of bitterness springing up causes trouble, and by it many be defiled. A bitter person is no longer willing to forgive their they, they're no longer willing to believe that there's any possibility for change. They're just done. And the idea is you get to the point where you fall short of the grace of God. You get to the point where you say, no more grace for you. A bitter person is like the soup Nazi of the soul. No soup for you, right? No grace. Aren't you glad that God never gets to that point with us? God never gets to the point where He says, no more grace. I'm done. Well, the Bible even says it takes a really long time for God to get there with the unbelieving world. You, you know 2 Peter 3, 9. The Lord is not slow about His promise. People are mocking the Lord. Where's the promise of His coming? It's not because God can't do it. 
but he's long-suffering. He's patient toward you, not, not wishing any to perish, but, but for all to come to the repentance. To come to repentance. That's why the Lord hasn't returned. Because he, he leads with grace. Think of how many times God should have gotten there with, with, with you. How many times you, you committed the same sin again and, and again, and, and yet you didn't exhaust His grace. He didn't forsake you. And, and when you cried out for mercy, He gave it to you. That's the way we're supposed to be. We're never to say no more grace, no matter what someone has done to us. But the second word in the list goes, goes, goes right along with it. This is still sins of the, the divisive heart. It's wrath. Wrath is best described as anger on fire. It, it, it's, it's like... Um, oil that, that, that's floating on top of the water that, 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 that's there, and, and then it, 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 it combusts. It's the, it's the word for a sudden outburst. You might think of like a volcano, or like I said, like a blowhole. Anger or bitterness or the, the lava that sees and boils beneath the, the surface, and wrath is the eruption which takes place when it's stirred to, stirred to action. And as odd as this may sound, I was thinking about how odd this is to say, in our day and age, when I was young, one of my chores was to burn the trash. Doesn't that sound weird today? And to do that in a 55-gallon drum. You didn't burn all of it, but whatever was combustible. This was before Bedford County dumpsters and before um, the trash guy came around. I mean, you had to deal with your own trash. And you didn't take it to the dump. And I can remember how hard it was to get some of it lit whenever it was damp or wet. I mean, even more so whenever it was raining. I can also remember one of my favorite times was when I got to burn the Christmas tree at the end of the season. I mean, you didn't even put any paper in it. Just throw a match. I mean, that thing went up like, like nothing. Wrathful people are like dry Christmas trees. When the anger throws a spark, they, they go in an outbursting blaze. They don't keep themselves damp with the Word of God. They don't, they don't let love cover a multitude of sins, which means love throws a blanket, a smoldering blanket over, over the sins that somebody's committed against you. They don't douse the fire of self-centered pride with the rain of humility, so they're sinfully combustible, easily go up in flames. Now, anger and wrath are not always evil. Not always sinful. I mean, the Bible says God is angry with the wicked on a daily basis. Now, God obviously doesn't sin. And the Bible also says that Jesus will pour out His wrath on the unbelieving world in judgment one day. When that long-suffering mercy comes to an end, wrath will, will surely come. But anger that's sinful it, it, it is disconnected from a righteous cause, and it's directed at a person, not, not a problem. Like, like sin. You should get angry about the abuse of, of children, the harm of someone else. But unleashing anger for the wrong reasons and unleashing it on the wrong target is sinful. And two of the most common examples of sinful anger is, is when it's released within, you stuff it, or it's expressed without. When you're stirred up by something and anger bubbles, and rather than dealing with the offense, you you take that anger and you stuff it. And when you do that, you release it from, from within. You're, you're destroying yourself. You're, 
not destroying the problem. The other way is you blow up. In that case, sinful anger is released on others. Like an acidic chemical spewing from a fractured pipe, blistering everyone who was in the unfortunate range of your wrath. And both of these come from what a person is carrying around in their hearts. And the Lord says it's not fitting for, for a believer, so shed these, these self-centered clothes. The third word in the list, malice, anger, wrath, and malice, which is just another word for revenge or it's a desire to retaliate or to pay back. Paul uses a general term for, for evil here. When it's placed in the context, it, it goes along, it takes on the connotation of the other words. So it's this ill will in the heart. The focus is the, is the intent to pay back another. A person with malice is, is someone who's moved beyond reactionary anger and they're actively looking for an opportunity to, to pay back another person, to hurt another person. You say, I would never do that. I'd never hurt another person. I mean, I believe you. Unless you're provoked and you nurse the sin. The world's, the world's played out on a daily stage it's the you-get-yours mentality. Malice is the drive to give it to them. It's the determination to repay evil for evil. To make sure that someone pays for what they've done to you. You owe me a pound of flesh and I'm going to get it. It can be as simple as what you give that poor customer service rep that's lucky enough to answer your call after Amazon has more, uh, messed up the fourth time on your order. This person is the one who gets you. What's in your heart to give it to Amazon and that person is the target is give me malice or it can be as serious as deep-seated disgust that a wife has for her husband after years of neglect. It can look like driving really slow whenever someone's riding your bumper or compliments of Joel James, or it's a desire to put hair remover in the shampoo bottle of the guy who dumped you. And you're thinking about ways in which you can pay him back. Haman, from the book of Esther, would be an Old Testament example of someone who had malice. He hated the Jews. He set out to destroy them. He plotted to do so. Malice comes out in plots to pay back. Hitler is a person who had malice. Those two examples alone should tell you that's something not fitting for, for a believer. I mean, who would want to be like Haman or Hitler? But it should be obvious. That this one shouldn't be worn by, by someone who names the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the, the epitome of selflessness, and the one who laid aside uh, heaven, came to earth to die for sinners, and those sinners he came to die for not only rejected him and his work, they mocked him, they cast him out, they spit on him and crucified him. And what drove them to do those things was malice. And yet not one drop of malice ever entered the Lord's heart. Malice is not a fitting garment for, for someone who has been covered by this garment of compassion with the Lord Jesus Christ. An anger, wrath, and malice that's in your heart will eventually come out of your mouth, which is the second segment on the list. Look at verse 8. But now you also put them all aside. Anger, wrath, and malice, slander, 
abusive speech from your mouth, do not lie to one another. The second group is sins of the tongue. He starts with the word slander or blasphemy. And then he moves to abusive speech. Both come from your mouth. What a person does who has anger, wrath, and, and malice. They slander and they lie and they abuse others with their, with their speech. I mean, when you get angry, you say things that are harmful, don't you? I do. I mean, when you're erupting in wrath, you're less controlled in what, in what you say. When you have malice, your intent is to slander the one who, who wronged you. I mean, slander is an attempt to belittle or cause someone disrespect. It, it literally means to attempt to change their reputation. It can be underhanded ways. It can be overt ways. Some of your Bibles will translate this blasphemy. It's where we get the word. When we blaspheme God, we're in one sense slandering Him. I mean, anything used to reduce God's reputation is slander, removing His holiness in the way you describe Him is slander. Depreciating His love is slander. It's what Romans 1 says that unbelievers do. The next word is abusive speech or filthy communication. It means base or dishonorable talk. It, it means foul speaking or, or, or dirty talk, like language that is profane. But when it's held tight to the context, it, it means words that abuse other people. Foul-mouthed abuse, one translated it, refers to obscene or derogatory speech that one hurls toward another person. That fool... Who does he think he is challenging me? That hussy, who is she looking at my husband? It's when people lose their vocabulary and their upbringing and they curse people. And yet that's what people revert to whenever they're angry, wrathful, and, and bitter. I mean, James 3 says that you're not to curse any person because they're made in God's image. You might not like them, or you might not like what they've done to you, but, but they're not yours to curse. They're God's. And He'll deal with them. He sees fit. And if that wasn't motivation enough, uh, the Bible says that we will give account for every word, including tone and intent. But I tell you that every careless word that people speak, they shall give an account for it in the day of judgment. You think what you put on social media 10 years ago whenever you were young and dumb is a problem? Every single word that you utter, even in your heart toward another person, will be recounted. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. You see how these two segments go together? What's in the heart and what comes out of the mouth? You can cover what's in the heart for a while, but, but if you listen to someone closely and long enough, it'll come out, some backhanded criticism, some subtle depreciation of someone else's character. It will come out because it's in your heart, and the Bible says, out of the heart the mouth speaks. What's going on in your mind, what you think about over and over and over is what fills the heart, and which is why the Bible says the first stop is to, first step is to take your thoughts captive. Refuse to dwell on them so your heart doesn't get settled or full of these malicious or, or angry thoughts. 
I mean, the two ways that we often blame shift with these categories, the first one and the second one, is we say things like, he made me mad. And the other thing we say is, I didn't mean to say that. I mean, no one makes you mad. You just didn't cover the offense with love. And you really did mean to say that, at least in that moment, because out of your heart, the, the mouth spoke. I mean, you might wish that you hadn't have said it, but that's what you meant. I mean... The devil didn't put that thought in your, in your head. It, it, it was in your heart. It, it just came out of your mouth. It's just in that moment the, the electric fence was turned off and the bulls that are running in there got away before you could catch it. But there's one more. Look at verse 9. We're, we're, we're told we must not lie to one another. Do not lie to one another. And Paul again sets apart this final unrighteous deed like, like he did in the first list. Verse 6, he, set apart, he sets apart covetousness. And here he sets apart lying. And this is, as I said, another imperative, another command. And, and even more interesting, this one has a progressive idea. He doesn't just say, lay aside deception. It's like, stop lying to, to one another. I mean, either the Colossians are, are falling to this sin or... More than likely, Paul knows this is a continual temptation for, for all of us. And as Christians, we're, we're to lay aside lies. It's just a, it's an evil word, isn't it? Lie. It just sounds bad even when you speak it. And it should because the Bible says God hates liars. Proverbs 16, or 6, 16, there are six things the Lord hates, seven are detestable to Him. Second on the list is a lying tongue. You're never more like Satan than when you do three things. When you lie, when you accuse the brothers, and when you sow discord. He does all three. What's the first recorded sin in the Bible that Satan committed? He lied. He lied to Eve about God, and it carried on from there. Cain lied to God in... Genesis 4, 9, Abraham lied about his wife, saying that she was his sister in Genesis 12. Isaac lied in the same way, denying Rebekah was his wife in Genesis 26. Jacob lied to Isaac for the birthright in Genesis 27. Jacob's sons lied to him about Joseph, and finally Joseph broke, broke the pattern. And while we hate lying and liars, we only need to look in the mirror to find one. I mean, lying is something in our nature. Jeremiah 17, 9. The heart is lying. The heart is deceitful, uh, is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? It says it's more natural for us to lie than it is to tell the truth. I mean, did you have to teach your child how to lie? I mean, you might have modeled it for them, but it was in there. Just part of their wicked human nature. Lying has its root in self-gain. Moral sins have the root in covetousness. I want something other than what God has promised me. Sins of anger have their root in self-centeredness. I can't believe they did that to me. Lying has its root in self-gain. When a person lies, they, they hope to gain something by the lie. Either an escape from a perceived consequence or a hopeful benefit, and, and both are what they believe that the lie will get them. It's easier at times to lie than to tell the truth. The truth can seem to bring consequences, but it never does. 
Lying increases wickedness. Proverbs 29, 12. Lying brings destruction. Hosea 10, 13. You have plowed wickedness. You have reaped injustice. You have eaten the fruit of lies. Lying's not profitable because every secret thing will be brought to light, the Bible tells us. And not only that, the Bible says all liars will find their place in the lake of fire, Revelation 28. Lying's not fit for somebody who knows the truth. So we must put it off. But there's one more that we must deal with. And that is found in this third article to the death sentence. It's, it's the decisive reason that you must do this. And it's sins that disrupt the body of Christ. Look, if you would, at verse 9. Do not lie to one another. And now, after finishing the list, Paul explains why. Since or because... You have laid aside the old self with its evil practices and put on the new self who is being renewed according to a true knowledge or to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. We've already been over in Romans what verses 9 and 10 mean, but, but look at this last statement. A renewal in which there is no distinction between Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave and free man, but Christ is all and, and in all. This last sin to put off is, is kind of hidden in plain sight. And it's racial prejudice and social superiority. It's what is listed here in verse 11. That's his whole point. He lists four categories or differences that Paul says are irrelevant to the Christian. Greek and Jew, which is superiority by heritage, Circumcised and uncircumcised superiority by piety. Barbarian and Scythian superiority by, by one's own way of life. Slave or free. Relation and status based on honor or wealth. I mean, Greeks and Jews is pretty self-explanatory. They both thought they were superior to one another. The Jews said I'm, one of their prayers was, I'm, thank, thank you God that I'm not like, like, like a Gentile. I'm not like a dog. And just like today, the secularists say, I'm so thankful I'm not like an ignorant Christian who believes all those fairy tales. They think themselves superior. Circumcised and uncircumcised, that should be familiar too. Jews called, them, uh, called Gentiles uncircumcised dogs. Gentiles thought Jews were religious nuts. You might not know what a barbarian or a Scythian is. That's it's, it's why Paul uses Greek here rather than Gentile. The Greeks called barbarians uneducated or, or ignorant people. They're like the, the hillbillies. The name barbarian is, is the name that the Greeks gave people who couldn't speak Greek. Not as educated as I am. And so when they listened to them talk, it sounded like they muttered, bar, bar, bar. It's like mocking them. You know, ching chong, things that people do today. So in their minds, they were clearly superior and a free man thought himself to be better than a slave, and a slave resented a free man. These are all the social strata and cultural divisions that made up Paul's world, and just like we have divisions today, Christians and secularists, blacks and whites and haves and have-nots, socialists and capitalists. And Paul says none of those identities matter. They're meaningless. 
They're not erased whenever you come to Christ. You're still a Jew, a Gentile. When you get saved, you, you, you don't release from your social status. You still may be a slave. You still may be an employer. But that's not what matters anymore now that you're a Christian. That's not where, where the lasting order lies. Those are all orders and classifications that make up the earth. And the earth is going to perish one day. The earth is in the hands of the evil one. That's not where real identity lies. What matters is in the church is Christ is all. And Christ is in all. Which is to say your identity now is simply Christian. If you haven't read the elder's paper on titled Why We're Not Woke, I would encourage you to do that because it blows this out in a much, much fuller way. But it explains that the answer to racism and social justice that's even raging in our day is not more more racism and injustice. It's the unadulterated gospel in a biblical church. It's Christ is all and in all. And when you come to Christ, you're not a Jewish Christian, a white Christian, a wealthy Christian, a slave Christian. You're just a Christian. You're part of his body, which is the church. I think the most significant word in this verse is, is in verse 11. And it's the word which or there, where there is. A renewal in which there is no. Paul identifies this union, this renewal as our union in Christ. We're, we're, we're placed into Christ at, at salvation. We're all placed in union with, with Christ. He's now our identity, and, it, and then it continues in this new relationship of the new man, which is being renewed in the knowledge of the Creator. And so all of these social things that matter in the world out there, but in here, there's no distinction. Christ is all and in all. That's how he, how he ends. You see that? The very end of verse 11? But, here's the adverse, adversative. Here's what the world does. Greek and Jew, circumcised, uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, and free. But, Christ is all and in all. Literally, Christ, or, but, but is all and in all Christ. It's emphasized there. And Paul says the reason that we're to put aside prejudice is because Christ is our focus and Christ is in all believers. So in the church, you're no longer focusing on social status or ethnic differences like the world does. You see Christ, which is a higher status, and everyone possesses that higher status. But what the world is doing and trying to convince Christians to do is actually practice this list of sins to advance, isn't it? Aren't they? What they're telling you is grow bitter over how you've been done wrong. Be angry and wrathful about it to the point that you do something, like protest, or worse, burn things. Develop a maliciousness or I'll get you type of attitude toward toward your foes. Take every opportunity you can to speak evil against them. Blaspheme them. Tear their character down, which is all you see on TV. Everyone's saying the worst possible thing they can say about another person to assassinate their character, whether it's true or not. They lie about other people. They shade the truth. And that's the lie they're selling. 
Rise up. If you don't, people will just run over top of you. Take back what they stole. Stand up for yourself. And Christians can fall to that lie as well. And Paul says that thinking is contrary to Christ. Of course that's wrong. But that's not where you're going to find what you're looking for. It's not going to bring peace and justice. It's going to bring more war, not only with others, but this verse says with God. Now, what you do as a Christian is you overcome evil with good. You put off all those things and you put on the list that's coming. And you focus on Christ and His kingdom, who is all. And you minimize those differences by reminding yourself that Christ is all and in all. And you put on a heart of compassion, which is coming next. And then, then you'll find peace. And then you'll be different. Doesn't mean there won't be social tensions. I mean, that's the whole point of this verse being in the Bible, right? Differences always create tensions because of our sinful heart. But it's dishonoring Christ and denying the church's very makeup to not see that the higher plane is Jesus. And if you're battling that sin or any other kind of sin that you, you go through this list, remember that God never says, no more grace. Aren't you thankful for that?